Earlier this year, three Republican legislators introduced the Patient Choice, Affordability, Responsibility, and Empowerment, or CARE Act, aiming to replace the Affordable Care Act. The proposal would eliminate federal funding for Medicaid expansion and end Medicaid's historic coverage entitlement for many low-income Americans, replacing it with block grants to the states. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm talking with Sarah Rosenbaum, a professor of health law and policy at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. Professor Rosenbaum has co-authored a perspective article on the constitutionality of Medicaid block grants. Professor Rosenbaum, as you write in your article, the Patient Care Act would repeal the insurance reforms of the ACA and substantially scale back tax subsidies for insurance premiums. What's happened to the proposal since it was unveiled in February? Is there support for it in Congress? Thank you very much for having me. The current state of play is as follows. Both houses have done what Congress does every year, and that is prepare the outline of a budget blueprint. The budget blueprint provides sort of broad brushstroke direction to Congress and to the congressional committees regarding the decisions that will be made over spending and taxes. Everybody expects that this budget blueprint will call for very substantial cuts in the Medicaid program, among other programs. And we expect that some version of the Patient Care Act will, at that point, surface within the committees of jurisdiction that actually will produce the legislation to implement the savings targets in the budget resolution itself. So, in other words, you can think of the CARE Act as the palette on which Congress is going to paint when it starts building the actual legislation to implement its budget decisions. If we look just at the proposal, the budget cuts from Medicaid would total nearly $3 trillion over 10 years. So is the purpose of the plan solely to reduce spending, or does it have other objectives too? It's a very good question. When you reduce spending to that degree, that is an enormous reduction in federal Medicaid outlays, you are making both a financial statement and a policy statement, because considering Medicaid's size and the responsibilities to which it's been assigned, you can't possibly run the program as Medicaid runs today. That is, as open-ended financing to states, and in turn, of course, states give coverage to various groups of people, mothers and children, low-income adults, elderly people, people with disabilities, on an entitlement basis. So when you have a program serving almost 70 million people today and you cut spending by trillions of dollars, what you are effectively saying is that this program will no longer be the program that Congress first enacted in 1965 in exchange for states' agreement to essentially follow the program's requirements. The sponsors nonetheless described the move as modernizing Medicaid to provide better coverage and care to patients. So what do they claim are the actual benefits to patients, and do you think that anyone would really gain from such a shift? The patients are, I would say, unequivocal losers in this proposal simply because the funding is not there to provide adequate coverage at payment levels that are sufficient to assure that patients actually have access to care. As I am sure your readers are aware, 
Medicaid already is a very low payer. This is something that the journal has explored on a couple of different occasions. It is very difficult in the Medicaid program for patients, for example, to have access to highly specialized services. Primary care access is reasonably adequate because there are programs like community health centers and other safety net providers that can fill the gap left by low private provider participation. But when it comes to specialty care, obviously there's nothing that equals the community health centers program for specialized care. And that's where we see some of Medicaid's most significant limitations. And so if you think about Medicaid's coverage, which is very comprehensive because of the health status of the patients and the very, very low cost-sharing rules that Medicaid follows because, of course, we are talking about very poor people, unless you cut provider payments to virtually nothing or scale back coverage deeply or impose very high cost-sharing from a relative standpoint on very poor people, it's simply not possible to run Medicaid as it historically has run, which is as comprehensive coverage for its beneficiaries. With block grants, the financial risks of the program would largely be shifted to individual states, and there would undoubtedly be inequities among the states. What states do you think would suffer the most if the Patient Care Act were to become law? In a block grant situation, of course, nobody really knows the formula that Congress would use to set the block grant. They would have to have some sort of an allocation formula, whether it is based on states' historic spending or some aggregated amount of money that is built by a synthetic estimate of some kind, what Congress is willing to put into a state, we don't know. But it's one of those shifts in kind, not degree, as Chief Justice Roberts once said in the Sebelius case a few years ago, that is so profound that it's hard to say which states are hurt the most. I mean, all states get hurt. The states that have run very comprehensive programs in high-cost states would be hurt because the money would not be sufficient for them to maintain their programs unless they were willing, of course, to fill in with their own state funds the billions of dollars they would lose in federal funding. And in the very poor states that have locked themselves into very limited programs, under a block grant, there would be no room ultimately to adjust. So, for example, Louisiana or South Carolina that has up until now refused to cover low-income people would find itself forever relegated to a program that excluded low-income adults potentially because the block grant would be based on possibly the state's historic spending, which of course doesn't account for changes in population coverage rules. If the state could figure out how to take the historic money it was getting and spread it over a larger population, perhaps by providing people with very, very, very limited coverage and very high cost sharing and using very low provider payments. It might cover more people, but of course that then raises the deeper question of what does it mean to be covered? What does it mean to be insured? If you have evidence of enrollment that gets you almost no benefits and has cost sharing that makes care unaffordable and no provider sees you, it's not clear that you would be considered covered. This isn't the first time that policymakers have proposed moving Medicaid to block grants. How is this plan different from past attempts, and do you think it stands a greater chance of success? 
very good question. It is most certainly not the first time that we've seen block grants. Block grants have popped up as an idea in Medicaid several times in the past. What makes this proposal very different is not so much the details of the proposal or its operating elements, but the fact that the proposal comes three years after the Supreme Court's decision in NFIB versus Sebelius, which, of course, we all know as the landmark case that upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act's personal responsibility requirement, what is commonly referred to as the individual mandate. But Sebelius also stands for the proposition that when Congress uses its spending clause powers to fundamentally alter, completely alter a program that historically was designed and structured to do one thing and is suddenly structured in a completely different way, at that point, unless Congress gives states the option of shifting to essentially a new way of running the program, it has overstepped its constitutional powers. It is, as I noted, a shift in kind, meaning a totally new program, versus a shift in degree. And that principle, that the fundamental reinvention of a program, particularly one, as the court noted in Sibelius, as massive as Medicaid, that a total shift in the nature of the program would be considered tantamount to a new program. Now, a state could be given the option of administering the program as a block grant with very, very deep cuts in funding, with some more flexibility, although that flexibility probably would be offset by the complexities of administering a block grant, which are considerable. But we are convinced that almost no states would take such an option because the financial impact on a state of moving to a block grant is just huge. Congress could, we think, write an entirely new program, but not in an atmosphere as politically riven as this one. And so just to simply recast the existing program, which has always run on open-ended financing and has always run as a legal entitlement for poor people who are eligible for it, would be the kind of huge shift that the court tells us is simply beyond Congress's powers to mandate on any state. They would have to voluntarily agree to such a shift. Thank you, Professor Rosenbaum.